Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is the former children's laureate and best-selling author and illustrator, Lauren Child. She was awarded an MBE for services to children's literature and her award-winning titles include the Charlie and Lola, Clarice Bean and Ruby Redfort series. Lauren Child, welcome to Twice Upon a Time, and thank you very much for your choice of book. Tell me the title and the author, please. It's The 18th Emergency by Betsy Byers. Now, I confess, I hadn't read this book before, so in all ways it was a revelation. But when did you first read it? How old were you? I think that I was 11. I think so. And I think I discovered it because I think it was a Jack and Nori book. And I think that Quentin Blake was live illustrating. And I might be wrong, but I know he did do that quite frequently on Jack and Ori. And that stuck in my mind. And I've never asked him, actually, if, I'm, if I've remembered that correctly. But it's the first book that I ever bought with my own money because I thought it was so brilliant. Wow. that's an, Again, that's a, a first for us. When you went to buy the book then, did you go on your own and had you saved up for it or was it uh, uh, something that had to happen in adult company? I would have gone with my mother to our local bookshop because we lived in a small market town called Marlborough in Wiltshire. And we had a bookshop there that we were all very excited about because of my mum being a very big reader. And we hadn't had a bookshop in our previous village well we lived down a lane you know with no shops at all and so we'd moved to this what seemed quite a big town suddenly and there was a shop called the white horse bookshop which is still there i went in it last week and i will have bought it there i should think with pocket money or money from my grandmother because she used to give us bits of money for easter and christmas so i think that's what will have happened it's the only place i could have bought the book there weren't any other bookshops and we didn't really go places, you know. But I do remember also I had two positions of power in my childhood. One was to be a milk monitor, handing out the tiny milk bottles to the other children. And I was very unusual because I loved milk. So I would drink all the milk they didn't want. Me too. And Especially the gold top. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so I was very, very popular for that because <laughs> so many of them hated the milk. Um The other position I was given was library monitor. And actually the library was, of course, those folding. Do you remember those? They had elastic across the front. They were sort of little library corner um, pieces of furniture. 
And so we had two of those that would make a square with a rug and the elastic bands going across to keep the books in place. And because I was a library monitor, I was allowed to choose the books when the mobile library came round. That's massive. Yeah, so that was really nice. And I remember choosing the 18th Emergency for the Quiet Reading Corner. If that was the first book you ever bought, was it particularly precious then? I think it was a sort of life-changing book for me because it's been with me ever since. And I read it from time to time every few years and I actually have it on tape. I've got these tapes of it. And in preparation for today, I wanted to sort of really remember it in detail so I I wanted to play the tapes and the only tape machine I have now is a Fisher-Price tape recorder so I had to listen to it on this little plastic tape recorder that worked really well because they just don't break but um, yeah it was incredibly precious to me this book because I think what it told me is that life is both funny and tragic in equal measure and it keeps flipping between the two from second to second, minute to minute, you don't know what's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. The, the basic story of Benji, known as Mouse, who is convinced that Marv Hammerman, several years senior and about four times his size, is going to beat him up at some point. So the action doesn't take place over many days, does it? But it's so vivid, mm-hmm. his fear. And the anticipation of it for him is so vast that he can think of little else. But of course, for everybody else around him, they come and go with this information. Um, before we get really embedded in the plot, which we will in a minute, can I just ask, where, where did you used to read? What, did you have a favourite reading place in your house? I don't know. I, I can't really remember that. We had, my mother was a school teacher and she was passionate about books. We go to the library, as far as I remember, sort of twice a week because she was so keen on going to the library. And so I'd spent quite a bit of time sitting in the library reading. And when we lived in a village, we also had a mobile library, which was a great treat to go and choose books from. But I probably read in my bedroom, I think. But there was a lot of reading too, which I always enjoyed. And I went to a village school where the headmistress was would always read at the end of the day. And because it was a village school, it would be for children between sort of six to 11. She'd, she'd read one book to all of us. So I have a very strong memory of that. So always words, always words and reading. But with this particular book, no illustrations, apart from the ones that Quentin Blake did possibly live on Jack and Ori. There's only one. It's on the cover. That's it. So the pictures in your head must have been incredibly Vivid. Yes, and I think I did say to Quentin when I finally met him, because he was, he was, I was quite scared to go up and say hello to him. I think I must have been about 30 or so. And he was such an important figure in my life that I, I was very nervous in case he wasn't nice. And, <laughs> and he was charming. And I went up to him and I said, I read all the Betsy Byers books with his cover illustrations, but I couldn't read any of the others because they didn't allow me a way in. And somehow this cover, I mean, it's a perfect cover of a boy running with a little dog running beside him. And then all these imagined sort of scary creatures like snakes and crocodiles and sharks looming out of the shadows at him. That's just a perfect way of describing the book, really. And he just got it. So 
I've seen other covers for this book and there is no way I would have ever picked the book up. They're very sort of static and they don't give any sort of friendly feel, whereas I think he just does it so perfectly represent a character. And because of that, the character that I see, all the images I see as I read it, are this character. And I see it all in the style of Quentin Blake. One thing that struck me straight away, of course, is that uh, it's, it's an American book. It's mm. an American book. And right from the outset, you're, uh, there's a dog running and it's got a, a box of Cracker Jacks, which are not on the shelves here mostly. Uh, did you not find that slightly off-putting or were you fascinated by, by America generally? I'm really glad you raised this point because I feel we in some ways do readers a disservice when we translate everything for them. Because for me, the huge pleasure of reading a book set in a different country is that you learn all these really personal things like Cracker Jacks. I had no idea what Cracker Jacks were, but I sort of imagined what they might be. And then I remember watching Breakfast at Tiffany's when I also at a very young age, Cracker Jacks are in that. And then I was, oh, that's what they are. And because no one could tell me what they were. And of course, no Google, so you can't look it up. Um, But things like learning that a pavement is a sidewalk and all those sort of lovely terms, I I became sort of obsessed with America. So I read lots and lots of American books. I felt a bit like that. My cousins lived on American oil bases. So they would send back American comics and had lots of references to things which I wasn't really allowed or didn't get really like Coca-Cola. And the the whole way they lived seemed to be in some glorious technicolour, probably influenced by watching films too, but but the whole idea of America was not off-putting, was it? It was somehow almost a better world. I totally saw it like that. You know, even down to their big refrigerators. You know, we had a tiny one with an icebox. So all of those things seemed very glamorous. But when you watched an, an American children's film or you watched you know, the little sitcoms and things, whether it's Mork and Mindy or Private Benjamin or any of those things, they were real locations. And ours were all in this very shaky studio with all wobbly, wobbly sets. And so I could never lose myself in them like I could with the American shows. No, I totally agree. I think it's lovely. Um, we go back to Benji's plight in the book. And all the way through this book, I mean, his nickname is Mouse because he tends to be a bit shrinking and small and held back. But he is anxious all the way through. This is a a picture of an anxious child. Did that resonate too? Yes, I think. And and that stayed with me. In fact, I even was doing a talk about that last week, about this idea that you suppose that your children might tell you everything, but they don't. They hold all these fears and anxieties very close often. And I think that's because to tell the fear and anxiety is for it to get out and escape. And it can seem very much bigger if you make it real by talking about it. And then I think the other thing that's true is what happens in Benji's case, which is to have it patted down. So you say, this boy is after me and he's going to beat me up and I think he might kill me. And then your mother says, oh, I'm sure he's not going to kill you. And so you're constantly told that your worry isn't really a worry. And we do that as adults to other adults as well. So a lot of people feel that there's no point talking about their depression or their grief or their pain because you're going to be told, don't worry about that. It's 
going to be all right. She says, oh, you'll you'll laugh about this in a week or so. Exactly. Which is impossible to imagine from here. But yeah. certainly as a child, you think I do not have yeah. the ability to see myself on the other side of it for a start, because time is very different when you're a kid. But also the idea that something that worries you to that extent would ever be risible is beyond imagination. Exactly. And I think that Betsy Byers does such a good job of addressing that. But she doesn't tell you, she shows you it's such a perfect piece of writing because it builds and builds and builds. And the fear is getting not only bigger in his head, but it's getting nearer physically. It's getting nearer and nearer. And yeah, this idea that there's backup is very clearly described as not there. He tries to find it with his best friend, doesn't he, as he, who, who is a fantastic character. I think he is just, I recognised him. He's a fantasist, basically. You know, he will say what needs to be said, but it's not necessarily the truth. And he's got a constant stream of anecdotes. But he's also the, the, the chief um, architect of the emergency um, protocols, so that uh, these, are, these are ways of dealing with things which um, may possibly happen, uh, being confronted by a crocodile or a boa constrictor. But Ezzy has got an answer for all of those. But of course, Benji is now confronted with the 18th emergency, something for which he has absolutely no solution. And I think what she does really well is that thing with the, with the best friend who's sort of slightly in awe of Benji for being in the situation that he's in. So he's sort of cheerleading yeah. it in a way, yeah. isn't he? He's not, yeah. he's not about to stop it because he finds it a bit exciting. Yeah, which is, again, another truth that, that it's sort of bad news that we get very sort of excited about sometimes, you know. And there is, as you say, there's a glamour that, that you know, the toughest boy in school is going to beat up his best friend. All the way through. I, I do think the way that she has depicted the mother is just so generous. You know, there's this woman trying her best. I mean, Benji is in such a small apartment, not flat, but apartment, but he has to sleep in the hallway because he hasn't actually got a bedroom. And she is distracted all the way through, but with proper things. You know, she runs a sort of uh, cosmetic company where she has to go off and sell things at parties. And she is not dismissive because she doesn't care. She's dismissive because she's a grown-up. And as you say, that's kind of what we do. But I don't think it's an ungenerous portrait, is it? I recognised her. No, I, I, I think that's another thing that I really admire about the book. It's not, oh, poor them, poor Benji has to sleep in the hall. It's just a fact. That's what their life is like. He's the got mother, bookshelves. He's got bookshelves. His dad is away a lot. And, you know, I, I remember when I read it as a child, I thought they were separated perhaps. But I don't, I think on rereading... He's a truck driver. Yes, yes, exactly. He's a truck driver. So, In fact, his mother says something like, oh, this is hard for him too. But it's a, such a glancing thing yeah. that it's almost as though she just says it to herself. Yes. Because there's an agonising phone call, isn't there, halfway yeah. through, where his father rings, obviously long distance from somewhere very remote in America. And he's telling Benji that he will come back and he'll do something with him. And his mother is saying, sound excited, which is... <laughs> Yes. I mean, it is so poignant. Yeah, and Benji is just really hoping his father is going to notice the low in his voice and say something and speak up for him. And so that's rather tragic. But it's interesting that I interpreted it that way as a child, and actually it's not that way, but it's quite interesting. For that, that, That's the lovely thing about books, is that you take these ideas and you're thinking about a child living a very different life than you're living or you look at the similarities. So there were a lot of touchstones for me. And I think that's why it's such a big 
big book for me that, you know, I, it takes me right back to all those feelings of being alone as a child. I think the depiction of school is brilliantly done. The sort of, the, the way the teacher is slightly, um, not, again, it's not, dismissive is the wrong word, but, but concerned with other things, moving on very quickly and gets rid of children saying, uh, you know, I need to go to the loo when he's frightened or needs to leave the room because he's seen it all before. I think she, her perspective is extraordinary in that she can split herself into those two spaces at once. The kid in the room who needs to get out to think about things and the teacher in the room who just thinks it'll get to whatever o'clock in due time and we will all be leaving. And it's just that, again, that different measurement of time. I mean, she even mentions the school clock, doesn't she, which moves in a particular way so that it sort of jerks out the time. And I remember those clocks that you used to watch and the hands used to tremble as they got closer to the hour yeah, that you right. needed. <laughs> yeah, I do really, remember that too. Really extraordinary. And as a child, you do watch the clock a lot because, as you say... Time moves much more slowly. So there's a lot of talk at the end of the book in the final scene where he can't he can't quite believe the time. He's constantly looking at his watch, isn't he? There's a precursor to the... I mean, I, we're going to have to talk about the end of the book, um, which obviously spoiler alert for anyone, but I don't think it's... At this point, I don't think it's uh, uh, vital that people don't know that in the end, he does actually get beaten up. But there's a little uh, hint of that when he's hit very hard by a large girl who actually hits him so hard that he's astonished he is still living the other side of it. Yeah. And she's quite casual about it. They've been playing yeah. a sort of teasing game with the girls, going to put them in the bin. And she goes pretty much, you know, nobody puts me in the bin. Yeah. And, and he is, again, astonished, but he doesn't, he doesn't judge her for what she did. No. Yeah, I remember being punched in the stomach by a boy because we were having this sort of argument. And then... I just couldn't believe it either because, I mean, I've been punched quite a lot by my sisters. But it's sort of you're ready for that and you punch back. That's We, we were always fighting. But it was, just, it was just this punch coming from nowhere that I didn't expect. And I didn't sort of blame him at all for it. We were having an argument. And I know that sounds extraordinary nowadays because it's a sort of thing, you know, not, not to hit each other. But that's, that, was, that was what happened. And I thought... Yeah, well, it was bound to go that way. But it's entirely to Betsy Byer's credit that she takes the book to that conclusion. Because I think there's a temptation, do you agree now, to rather soften the world for kids to think that there's some form of superhero or agency which will either empower them beyond the, the whatever they're confronting or someone will step in and help. This is just Benji on his own, which actually, reading it now, I thought that's, such a brave decision to make. I mean, I know she's making it in 1970-something, but even so, it, it makes the book, totally makes the book, that what is going to happen, happens. Yeah, everything he fears. But instead of having somebody step in or him being able to cleverly talk his way out of it, which, as you say, would be a fantasy that that would happen, she, what she does is she has him step towards it rather than run away because... His mouse nickname has also come from his sort of darting out of out of the way of things and hiding out. And he tries to do that at first. And then it's as if he recognises that the fear generated by 
the fear of what's going to happen is worse, actually. Just waiting it out is worse. So he goes towards it and he actually goes to find Marv Hammerman and just puts himself into a fight. And he talks about it as a fight, which is also empowering for him, I think, even though he doesn't land a single blow. Yeah, he just stands there and takes it. And Marv's got these horrible hench boys as well standing yeah right yeah laughing yes yeah it's really hard mouse could see that ezzy was eager for him to get onto the good part the violence he slumped he wet his lips he said well when i was passing this chart on my way out of history and i don't know why i did this i really don't when i was passing this chart ez on my way to math He swallowed, almost choking on his spit. When I was passing this chart, Ez, I took my pencil and I wrote Marv Hammerman's name on the bottom of the chart. And then I drew an arrow to the picture of Neanderthal man. One thing that struck me reading it is that although obviously there aren't illustrations, Benji illustrates his world. He constantly does little drawings to point to things or circle things. or uh, he, He's extraordinary the way he sees the world. And that, that's what lands him in trouble with Marv, of course, is that he has pointed to a picture of a Neanderthal in his classroom and, and uh, aligned it with Marv, who obviously didn't approve of the, the similarity. Um, but that, that thing of drawing your way into understanding your world, you know, if there's a little slit on a piece of paper, he will draw an arrow and say, cut here. You know, that's just yeah. constantly, vividly illustrating. Yeah. Is is that how you came to illustration, that in the end you just think, I, I have to show what this is? I can't remember how I got into drawing. I think children draw until they're told it's not important or they're no good at it. And my father was an art teacher, so I was never told any of those things. And so we were positively encouraged to do that. So I think that made a very big difference to me. Whether it's it's hard to know if I'd been in a different family with a different attitude to drawing, what would have happened? Because, you know, there were other things. I was I was, you know, not bad at school. So there were there other ways that I might have been pushed but it was a passion for me drawing um but I think what Betsy Byers does by mentioning all these little moments and I I love there's a spider's web with a bit hanging down and you know he's saying pull here to release ceiling or something you know they're, they're really sweet little moments and they remind me a little bit of David Shrigley very much, yeah, yes. because they're those sort of little um, funnies that you think, oh, that's really good. I wish I'd thought of that. Um, but they give him this personality, this interior world that you, as the reader, you really understand him from these tiny things and you get his sense of humour. And I think the other thing she does with extraordinary grace is to depict old people and their relationship to him. There's, there's a couple that he has a kind of uh, caring relationship with, which is so poignantly, beautifully done. I mean, he's not, he's not a saint at all, is he? he? He sort of resents it. On the other hand, he understands it. And at one point when he's talking about um, putting on the guy's coat and he says it smells like his father. So he is, his world is, is, is kinder than, than most kids, I think, because of that inclusion. 
Yes, there's a real sense of community in the community of the apartment block that he lives in. When Mrs. Casino phones his mother and says, will Benji go and pick up Mr. Casino? And and there's, I think it's that description as well that means a lot for children to be reminded that Mr. Casino was this incredibly strong, powerful, influential man until he got ill. You know, and it's almost as if he's slightly got dementia and he's very fragile now. And Benji keeps fantasizing that perhaps Mr. Casino inside will come back and protect him and come back into his own. And that that understanding that an old person was once a young person is really beautifully depicted as well. That is about the age, isn't it, when you're about 11, when you suddenly look at your parents and think, oh, people... Yeah, it's quite an alarming moment. Too. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that quite vividly. And there's a lovely bit where he's he's playing checkers with Mr. Casino, and the game is so slow because, as you say, Mr. Casino is fragile and thin, but he can still do it. He can mm. still do it. It's so enjoyable. I think it's very graceful writing, really. Yes, it's done so sparely. I mean, the book itself is. I'm holding it now. It's 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 slim. It's a yeah. slim volume, but there's so much inside it, and so much. Detail, just tiny things with his best friend, Ezzy, who has an extraordinary relationship with his family. He's one of a big family. But the idea is when he has to go home, he goes home. Wherever he is, there's a sort of magnetic pull Mm. to go home. And yet his parents don't acknowledge the tooth fairy, which Benji finds absolutely horrifying. Mm. Yes, (laughs) that's a really nice detail. And yeah, I I think describing those different families I've noticed that in her other books as well and I think she writes for the child from the child's point of view so everybody is written in the round so Mr Casino is understood the mother is understood she's never making people two-dimensional even Marv Hammerman what Benji realizes at the end is that it's a matter of honor for Marv he can't just let Benji walk away because it's about his honour. Yeah. And it's Benji's honour, really, to produce himself, yes. stand in front of him and say, OK, let's finish yeah. this. Yeah. It's, I also, Marv Hammerman, what a brilliant name. Yes, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Names must be really important to you in your books, because you're, you are so associated with the characters in your books as well as the plot. Is it is it instant for you, finding a name? It's not instant, but I can't write about a character until I've got their name. So, you know, I remember trying to put sort of just go and XXX went off. And I think, no, because I don't know who they are. Their their name is so important. And so when I was trying to think of a name for Clarice Bean, and she's my first character, I realised it has to be something I don't ever hear. I never hear the name Clarice. I still don't hear the name Clarice. It's a great name as well. I'm surprised it hasn't come back. It's funny, isn't it? I once met a Clarice when I was doing a, a talk and she was in the signing queue and that was, it was really nice to meet her, but that's the only one I feel I think I've ever met. And I called her Bean. It's not her surname. It's, it's just that sort of, she's got a slightly eccentric mother, I always think. And um, so they came up with this thing, Clarice Bean. And I thought, oh, that's really unusual name. And then a few weeks after the book was published, my publisher had a phone call from from this woman who said 
she I don't know how old she was. I think she was in her 60s or 70s. But she said, I am Clarice Bean. <laughs> it was no. really surprising. I think that was her surname, though. But it was very funny. And she'd seen the book in the, in the window and she'd phoned the publisher. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I think it's a shame when boys are, I think, somewhat taught that you might want to avoid a book with a girl on the, in the title or on the cover. And I think we sometimes steer them in that way as much as anything. Because I've definitely been at events where, you know, you've got the table of books and the parent is saying, oh, maybe not that one, maybe that one. Because, you know, that, that looks like it's for girls. And I say, it's not for girls, it's for anyone. I can't think of a book that I've written that is actually about things that might very particularly concern girls. So the Ruby Redfoot character, it, I mean, she could be a boy. You could just switch it. And Clarice Bean as well. You totally, could switch it. Totally. And it's also not just limiting in terms of the, the characters that you're reading, but in terms of how you think life might be for other people. Whereas, in fact, Benji's plight could have been me. You know, that sort of anxiety. There was, there was a girl at one of my schools that I was absolutely terrified of, and I saw her everywhere she wasn't. Mm. She was slightly taller than me, not hard, but you know, she loomed very large for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I think I had a similar thing, but it was more to do with verbal bullying, where you know I would think about the corridors that I could walk down, and the ones that I couldn't because I knew where that particular set of girls hung out, and that then you're going to cop it, and it felt like a physical assault. Every time you walk by. Is that secondary school? That was at secondary school, yeah. Girls are awful to each other at secondary school. Mm. 99% verbal. Yeah, yeah. And it's just horrible because you just feel, I just just would feel completely, you know, almost like you're dissolving because you, you feel so weak in, its, in that presence. Because where can you go if someone's shouting horrible things? It's sort of in a way... I would prefer to have been beaten up and, and because then someone can see and you can, you, you sort of recognize the pain, but, but that sort of mental thing is really difficult to cope with because you don't know how to tell anyone what and you're you, going you through. You came from a, what sounds like a loving and supportive family who were, were going to um, listen to you mostly, but you can't actually share that, can you? 
Yes, to an extent. I mean, yes, lots of very good things about my parents and my upbringing, but also lots of things that I really recognise in this book where I didn't tell them things that are going on. And sometimes when I did, there's the, well, what did you do? How come that happened? That You must have said something. And I think that's, that's a sort of thing that we can find ourselves saying to our own children really you know, without thinking, you know, you can sort of say, well, but what what did you say to her to get her to, to do that? And you have to really, really kind of pull back from that. But whether you're responsible for a nasty outcome or not, you know, is it, it's not always so that you are. But I tend to always think, ah, I must have, <laughs> I, I must have brought this on myself. <laughs> exactly, yeah, what did I do? Yeah. Yeah, and also I think it's it's um, almost essential and unavoidable that a lot of children's stories are set within or around school because it's the only time in your life where you ever have to see the same people every day mm-hmm. with absolutely no power over it. You know, you're usually even told where to sit. You know, and people will say the workplace, but of course the workplace is a lot about choice. But in school, you are stuck with those people. Mm-hmm. So you can really feel with Benji that he understands Marv, despite the fact he's not even in the same class. Yes, I think that's a really good point. I think the other thing I learned from reading The 18th Emergency is dialogue. Her dialogue is just perfect. So characters are made by the way they talk, which yeah. is absolutely true. And they're true. all different, which mm. is a real trick, isn't it, mm. to, to separate them out. And yes. Just do it so sparingly too. Even even the dog's proper. Love garbage dog. Yes. So he at one point coughs up a small turtle. <laughs> I know. It's It's really great. And that beginning... It's so filmic. Yes. It's just written like a film where the boy's running, the dog's running after him, but the dog doesn't know why he's running after the boy. He's just running because the boy's running. And so you you sort of can see all the street and everything. You can see the rubbish. You can see this dog. You can see this boy. And that's a beautiful way to begin. And it ends the same way. I've written Ruby Redfort, a series, into the Clarice Bean books because I had to, I needed a vehicle for her to get very excited about something. And I thought, well, what shall it be? And then I thought, a book series, because everyone was getting very, very excited again. It goes in waves, this, about serious fiction. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to write this series for her. And it's going to be a sort of pulp fiction. It's going to be the kind of book her teacher would totally disapprove of. And I did that because there was an awful lot of talk from the government and various people in who think they're in the know, saying that the kind of books that children should read and are val- that are valuable to them. And I always think that that's rubbish. Whatever book, film, music, whatever it is, that gives you something that nurtures you is important. So who can say what you should be reading? And also, if you get the bug for reading, you will expand on your reading. So I wrote these really silly extracts in the book. And then um, I started getting letters from children saying, oh, where can I get hold of the Ruby books? Because they sound really good. And then finally, what really tipped me to do it was a Kentucky librarian. And she wrote, exasperated to my 
agents saying, children are coming in and asking for these books. I can't find them anywhere in my system. And, and so I thought, oh, I'll write them. But I had to write them as really interesting thrillers because it would have been too boring to write them in the way I'd been writing. I do remember how my mother used to be exasperated with me because I was absolutely taken by the television, even though at that point we only had three channels and a black and white TV. And I would just watch anything, anything, the wrestling, you know, the the test card, anything waiting for something good to come on. But because I did that, I discovered all these amazing old films because I would watch you know, a Betty Davis movie, a Cary Grant movie. And these things taught me story. I think they taught me to be a writer. And they also taught me to be an illustrator because the way you make a film is a bit like the way you make a picture book because half the story, probably more than half the story, is is told visually, not with the words. So I think they were a really good education for me. And a lot of those things, like Little House on the Prairie, pushed me to read. So I got so caught up in that world that I wanted to read. So I read all those books and then I read a whole load more books about American history, about Native Americans. It just took me on this journey. Allow children to read what means something to them first and foremost. And then they will become readers, you know, and also audible. I'm a huge fan of that because I think I'm not hugely dyslexic. But I know I find reading quite difficult in that, not that I transpose words, but I read very slowly. So I'm all for children listening to to books as well. That is the best argument for letting children make their own choices I've ever heard. And thank you so much for this choice, Lauren Child. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Lauren Child. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Twice Upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton. And Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.